PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. week on PA Books, Neil King, author of American Ramble. Neil King is the author of American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. Uh, you know, a lot of traveling that we do today is by car and train. The, the feeling of speed and motion is so much a part of that. You walked from Washington, D.C. to New York City. Uh, how does walking through a landscape change your perspective? You know, it's hard to actually overstate how profoundly different it is. My formula kind of came to be after a few days, driving is 20 times faster than walking, 60 miles an hour versus three miles an hour. But the meaning kind of density is just so much greater than that. It's, it's, it's almost as if the landscapes are different landscapes. So the landscape that you might have driven through in your car at whatever speed and the landscape that the walker is walking through, they're not really the same place. And you know, it really became clear to me soon, day one, day two, after I headed out my door, that I just sort of entered a separate space almost. And it was a, as it transpired, it became this kind of magical scene between my house. I live nine blocks from the east, east of the U.S. Capitol. I walked out my door, I took a left, I went up, you know, past the Capitol itself, down to say hello to Abraham Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial. I went up Rock Creek Park directly north. and. I just had felt like I had entered into a, a, a world that I had traveled many times before, of course, New York, Washington, New York, Washington. It's a very crowded corridor, the Acela Corridor, et cetera. But my experience turned out to just be profoundly different. And, and I kind of knew it would, in part because I'd put a lot of thought into it beforehand. And I had a very distinct frame of mind the minute I set out the door. But still, that kind of what I call America at three miles an hour, or, or really our history at three miles an hour, um, is a profoundly different experience and one I really highly recommend others um, do in their own because it's really worthwhile. Now you comment in the book about how it was in, in, there was a time in the past when it was not uncommon for people to go walking to explore and discover things. Uh, of course, famously, Alexis de Tocqueville and right. Charles Dickens, yep. Henry David Thoreau. Uh, well, why did we lose that? Uh, you know why we lost it, basically, is because of the railroad, you know, and I, I talk about that some in the book and I you know, took the railroad bed that goes up from Baltimore, well, I caught it a little way up to York, and that was one of the earliest railroads built in America, and that was the big shift in, in global life, really, which is when the steam engine and the railroad upended our sense of speed and, our, and therefore our sense of time and proximity and space and everything else. And, you know, we're now way further down the road, and that kind of distancing that I think we're all um, experiencing from the immediacy of the landscape and I think the kind of whittling away of what I call the common ground that we all share is one of the forces that I think is a little troubling at the moment in terms of the divisions that you see playing out. And it was one of the things I really wanted to counteract and also just um, kind of meditate on when I went out the door because my main intention outside of arriving in New York after you know a set number of days was to just pay attention. like. It was a, an attention exercise where I wasn't going to be looking at my phone. I wasn't going to be 
listening to podcasts or music. I wasn't going to be distracted by the news. I was just going to pay attention to the story that was being told to me and, and the people that I met along the way. Now, throughout the book, you talk about different authors and books uh, who were travelers themselves. Was that a longtime interest of yours, or did you was that part of your research for the for this journey? It was a little of both. I've always been a huge fan of um, Thoreau, who you mentioned, or Emerson, or Walt Whitman, or some of our great early writers who were very much of the school of get out, see America, try to understand it from the sort of pedestrian level. But a lot of the reading I did before I set out was. Alexis de Tocqueville, Charles Dickens and, Dickens, and hundreds of others who were, had come to America, 1820s, 1830s, new country, um, not quite clear if it's really going to hold together, huge divisions, language, ethnic, slavery, anti-slavery. And they came and they traveled the country in a slow way. They took the trains, they took carriages, and they were here to say, all right, let's look at things step by step, very particular things, and try to come to some judgment about the future of this strange place. And it was through that lens uh, that I kind of walked out my door. I'd read a lot of those accounts. And I said, what if I just go out my own door with a similar state of mind and just look at the country kind of in the way they did, in that very deliberate fashion? Was there a moment where the idea just popped into your head and you're like, I have to do this? What happened there? You know, there was. And it's funny because it really sort of started originally as a joke going back, God, like 10 years ago where I live on Capitol Hill. And if I want to go to New York, I walk to Union Station, I take the train. Or I get in my car and I take on 95. Or I go to the airport and I fly to LaGuardia. Um, and I said one morning, I was like, wait, what if I just walked? Like, how would a pedestrian fit into all of that? Um, and that led me to doing a lot of research, like, well, what, how did people used to move in the back in the day? How did the native population move? What were their trails? What did those consist of? Well, how, what, how did the post, how was it moved? What were the postal routes? How did George Washington go to his inauguration, 1789, from Mount Vernon to New York City? Um, and so then, of course, I had, once I got more and more fascinated about what I started to call the founding, that this was a founding swath of the country where so much of our history had played out, uh, every layer of it, really, um, then it became, well, which, if I went, if I went out my door and went this way, then I would go across the Chesapeake. And thankfully, and any Pennsylvanian should know this, you have to go the Pennsylvania route, because if I'd gone up, you know, up the Jersey Shore, I would have had the ocean on one side and a limited kind of not so interesting history on my left, essentially, while the route I took, which was to come up into York, across the Mason-Dixon line, across York County, across the Susquehanna, into Lancaster County, you're walking through one of the great areas and regions of incredible experimentation, which continues to this day with the Anabaptists in Lancaster County and through a state that you know, starting with William Penn, was based on an experiment, right? Was give us the true sort of huddled masses of persecuted religious minorities from Europe and let's see what we can make of it. And so that was, it turned out to be a no-brainer that I had to spend most of the time in Pennsylvania. And by far the book is, in large part, a book about Pennsylvania because of that. How did your experience with cancer provide context for this journey? Um... You know, I, I, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't have done it had it not been for that, but and I, I, anyone that might be listening to this that's gone through one of these experiences, you know, might be taken aback a little bit that I would say that I've been thankful for it. Um, but it was a stretch where my numbers weren't great, and it, it really altered my sense of time and of opportunity and urgency 
And by the time I had come out the other end and was faring well and kind of given the bill of clean health by my doctor, I said, okay, I'm going to do this now. And, and, but the, it wasn't just seizing the moment. I really do think it was going into a venture, an adventure, that um, I was a changed person that was embarking on it, in part because I, I just saw matters differently. And in a lot of ways, the book I wrote is kind of a meditation on time and how do we, any of us individually, wrestle with time? Um, how is the things that we memorialize or try to remember, how does time affect those? Um, how do things just collapse and disappear and be forgotten altogether? Um, and a lot of that was animated by my own sort of you know, brush, brush with death um, experience in the sense that I was wor working on bonus time in a way. Now you're right about leaving your house and walking a few blocks to the Capitol building. Uh, the Capitol, of course, is not just a building, but it's symbolic of so much of America. You know, it's the center of Pierre L'Enfant's design of the city with the four quadrants being centered there. Was that a conscious choice to kind of start, to some degree, start your journey there? You know, I live so close to it, I really wanted to go in that direction. I really wanted to go down the mall, which is a, our front yard in some ways as a nation. Um, it just so happens I was originally going to do the walk, leaving my house at March 29th, 2020. As we all know, a lot of things happened in March of 2020. The world's shut down. I, I couldn't have done what I was planning to do. I bumped it all a year. What transpired in that year was this extraordinary stretch, certainly among the most extraordinary that we've witnessed as a nation. Um, COVID, George Floyd's death, the riots and, and um, unrest in the cities, the whole question of which statues should we tear down? What is the nature of our history? Are we a good people or a bad people? Were we founded in slavery or not? All of those questions were questions that I walked out my door to think about. And the capital that we had had the insurrection, riots, call it, call it what you will, that had happened there. The, the whole thing was still encased in fencing. So I walked past it at a very historic moment when the capital had been laid siege to and it was still being protected by troops when I went by it. And so that was a given that I had to go in that direction. And there were things I just wanted to think about immediately, which was, you know, Abraham Lincoln and the construction of the Lincoln Memorial and when things were put where they were, which 1922, that memorial was put there, which was also a very fraught moment in American history when it comes to early civil rights and race riots and all kinds of things. So it was, yeah, that was a given that I had to go that way. And I feel blessed that I happen to live in a, a place of that degree of centrality and, and significance, which gave a kind of perfect bookend to, the, to my walk. I start there, I end in New York. Now, one of the places you started, stopped early on was the statue of Albert Einstein outside of the National Academy of Sciences. And it's a very delightful statue. He's sitting, kind of lounging, reading a book with this reflective look on his face. So what did you take away from this? You know, that too was a time meditation because there was a sign there that just talks about the, you know, extraordinary immensity of, of our galaxy, which is truly beyond our imagining. And, and Albert Einstein himself did a lot of, um, the real breakthrough thought on us understanding what the nature of time is and how motion itself is, affects time. And because I was heading off in my own way of motion and through uh, a landscape where I really wanted to think about these elements of time, I wanted to sort of throw that in in writing the book, but also while I was on the walk, that kind of, um, yes, we're wrestling with these things now, either personally or as a nation. But on the other hand, there is this perspective of just the sheer scope of what the galaxy and the universe is made up of, and it's just a worthwhile thing to keep in mind. So it was a kind of, 
setting the stage in a way. And um, he was such a brilliant person to have come here in the first place. After you left that area, you would walk up through Rock Creek Park, which is a very large urban park. Uh, what is that experience to go from being in a city to being in this very wooded area? I had the great fortune, and just as a fluke of the way that Washington is laid out, that you can walk it all the way out up this creek, um, which everybody's familiar with sort of glancingly, but I'd never gone up to the, to the lengths of it, the end of it, really. And the first night I spent in this house that was once owned by Harold Ickes, who was the interior secretary for Franklin Roosevelt, and it was in its day called Headwater Farms. It was the headwaters of Rock Creek. And, you know, it was just a great way to walk out of an urban center, but through a very natural setting, and it gave me a lot of opportunities to think about the nature of rivers and water. And as you know, having read the book, rivers play a big role in, in the book as these sort of permanent features of the landscape that are worthy of a lot of respect. What is the experience like? You started in a city and then obviously when you walk out into Maryland, you're going into the suburbs and eventually you end up in a rural area. And that kind of repeats itself as you go from town to town uh, and, and other cities like Philadelphia. What, what is that experience like as, as you, you know, go through the, those transitions? You know, I really wanted to, to really observe that kind of thing as closely as possible and try to give some accounting of it. And, you know, you're walking through the layers of a city like Washington and you're walking out of the well-off, higher real estate areas into the kind of what I was calling like the service areas. And you could see a lot of the vehicles of the people that tend to those houses or build them. And then you go further out until you get into the kind of moneyed horse farm people. And I was very much anticipating like, okay, when am I going to encounter my first barn, historic barn? When am I going to come to the first really intact hamlet? Um, when am I going to be walking on a true country road? And you just sort of see how these transitions happen. And I felt very much that way, leaving York and coming into Lancaster and leaving Lancaster. And all of that was just another thing that was just really fascinating to see sort of how um, our towns and cities evolved and how they give way finally to the countryside. Outside of Randallstown, Maryland, you met a man named Ted. Who was he? So I, you know, by the second day even, I realized that um, when you walk over a length of time, you sort of share something in common with like biblical figures and that the whole concept of the parable really started to hit me that when you meet individual people along roads, they can be quite emblematic and fascinating of certain features, right? And they have one-off meaning. And Ted, black man, he was out at the end of his drive getting his trash. I come along, he says hello to me. He asked me what I'm doing. I'm this person with a backpack on, not exactly something you're going to see all the time. I tell him what I'm doing, where I've come from, and he immediately launches into a sermon, basically. And um, I called it the parable of the tuning fork because he said, uh, let me tell you what you're doing. You're on this walk. The nation's out of joint. It's out of tune. You're trying to tune yourself. You're trying to find a kind of harmony within yourself. And in doing that, you're going to help the nation get back to where it needs to be, and I, you know, I was laughing like, seriously, you're really putting that kind of weight on me, you know? I have to try to get the whole nation in tune by getting myself in tune. And he said, yeah, that's, that's how I see your walk. And it was just a great moment where I felt like somebody was kind of blessing my walk and giving it a certain sort of purpose that he saw anyway. You are a career journalist. Uh, how did being a journalist, where you're often paid to observe and see things, how did that affect how you uh, paid attention to things on your journey? 
You know, the question arises, and others have asked me, like, could just anybody do this walk and have this experience? And I would argue, yes, they could, and we could discuss that. But um, I don't think just anybody would necessarily go about with the same ease, because I've traveled all over the world. I've reported all over the world. I've been in a lot of strange situations where you're knocking on doors or walking across people's property to ask them questions about uncomfortable things. So that nature of the walk of encountering strangers, stopping, walking into their barns, you know, uh, kind of intruding maybe even a little bit into their lives, um, but in a nice, respectful way, is something that comes naturally to me. And the gathering of facts and the recording of um, conversations, you know, in some fashion after the fact and keeping notes and, and all that is something that I've done professionally. So it's something I did quite systematically while I was on the walk. And in a way, I wrote portions of the book even while walking because I would dictate into my phone um, thoughts, um, accounts of a conversation I just had, and portions of that, of that dictation are literally in the book. Did you make a decision to write the book before you went off, or was it kind of on the fence as you went through the journey? You know, I didn't think of the walk to say, oh, I could do this walk and then I could write a book about it. But by the time I walked out the door, I was planning to do a book. I'd already spent a lot of time um, researching the in-between, and I knew that there was a great story to be told, and I knew that the kind of contrarian, like, what? And believe me, a lot of people have that, you're going to do what? And up to like a week or so before I did it, it would be my mother-in-law or even my wife or others were, you know, a lot of people were kind of my mom. Um, like, you're, you're going to walk to New York? Isn't that dangerous? Why would you do it? It's not that much fun. It's not beautiful. And I was like, no, it, there's a world out there, and it's, it's, it is going to be amazing. And, um, but yeah, by the time I left, I had the firm desire and the intention to do a book. Now, the Mason-Dixon line is one of the most famous boundary uh, that, that we have in the United States, uh, border between Maryland and Pennsylvania. When you walked up to it, was, was it evident that that, that's, that that was the line, or were there any markers, any indication? So where I encountered it um, uh, was, there's, it's, I think it was called Stelts Road. You actually, I came up and right, it basically hit the Maryland-Pennsylvania line, and then the road was the, the line. Um, and it was a great, and I don't even think I planned that per se, that's just where I arrived. So I then walked down that road for a while and there was a, a, a church there, a cemetery that was on both sides of the divide, which was interesting in its own right. And then I came to a curve in the road and I just stopped and I looked down the, this lane. At that point it just became a, a, a gravel, sort of dirt lane that went down to this farmhouse. And that there was the Mason-Dixon line, that, that lane. And so I then kind of in a roundabout way went down. The farmhouse had been abandoned. It might even now have been sold or something. Nobody was living there, but it was very well maintained. And I just looked, just spent some time looking at the incredible construction of the barn, of the house itself, of the other outbuildings, and pondered how, you know, the Mason-Dixon line went right in front of the house. The house had a porch looking south over that line. It was built, as I found out later, by talking to some people in the 1830s at a time when a lot of Germans had come into that part of, of Maryland and Pennsylvania. I found out later the guy's name who built it, a guy named Krebs, he and his wife. You could tell by the, the ambition of the place that they had high expectations for their life. And it was just such a fascinating thing to just spend time there and think that during that span of time they were looking across that theoretical but still very meaningful line between freedom and slavery. And as we know, it was a messy 
so-called freedom even north of that line for a long time and a troubled one, but still that was a very important line. And it was a great part of the walk to be able to ponder the significance of that line in American life and then to see a tangible structure that had been built somebody by somebody that lived right on it. Now you would uh, walk into York, Pennsylvania and meet Jim McClure, who's been on this program before. Uh, did you plan, did you reach out to people in advance and say, hey, I'm going to be traveling along the route. Would you have time to meet with me? And, and what were you tr seeking to do? Yeah, I, I did. I, I always knew that I, if I just left the entire walk up to chance and I would meet interesting people just by chance that it wouldn't happen that way. So yeah, there were people that I reached out to in advance. And in the case of York, I, it was one of the few places where I paused for a day and a whole chapter is devoted to York and I call the chapter the memory boom. And it's about Jim. It's about a woman, Samantha Dorm, who's doing really extraordinary work at an all-black cemetery, the Lebanon Cemetery there, um, basically unearthing um, not just gravestones and grave markers, but the whole stories of uh, the lives of um, the blacks who first you know, moved into York uh, often after slavery and finding all kinds of uh, aspects of her own past. Jim knows that place as well as anyone who's written many books. And then I also wrote about Michael Helfrich, who's the uh, mayor there, who is a Thomas Paine fanatic and lives in a house um, that's one of the oldest houses um, west of the Susquehanna. I think it was built in 1738 or something like that. And his whole house is, you walk into it and you are walking into the 18th century. And so York was a really fascinating study of this sort of communal memory boom that's going on in a lot of places now. Now, you, you write about how you had a, a telephone conversation with your brother where you say that you had a Satori over a beer and tacos. What's, what's Satori? Satori is a, is a Zen concept of a kind of a profound there-ness, enlightenment moment when you're just sort of flooded with some sense of presentness and, um, and happiness, um, ideally. And that was a funny description where I was in a place called Reistertown, which is actually south of the border in Maryland, and I, it was pouring rain outside, and I was sitting at a, at a tavern eating some fish tacos and, and drinking a beer, and I was just overcome by a sense of... Um, of sheer physical happiness to be there and um, almost a kind of uh, sobbing kind of like, oh my God, sort of happiness. And, and I, when I called him, I, we had had sort of a long-standing joke about the whole concept of Satori and how you can have a word for something that's almost impossible to describe. And, and um, he was himself undergoing some bad tri um, tribulations with the brain cancer that then took him down later that year. And so it was just a moment that I wanted to share with him. Uh, now, earlier in your life, you had spent some time at a Buddhist monastery in Sri Lanka. So you did you did do some traveling as a young man. How did you end up there? You know, I took a trip around the world um, between um, stints in college. I went for two years in Chicago, and then I took a trip around the world, and I went back to school in, in New York. And so it allowed me, I was out and about for 18 months or something like that, and a portion of it I was, you know, <laughs> naively thinking I was going to become a Buddhist monk and achieve, you know, nirvana or something in a incredible monastery in um, Sri Lanka. And as I recount briefly in the book, I, you know, I was meant to be there and very focused on just these certain things, but I was always out walking and um, I left in a bit of frustration saying, okay, I'm not going to be a monk and I'm not going to be particularly good at what this requires of me. Um, but it was, there was a kind of irony in, in that the walk I took then, 26 days on the way to New York, became in a way its own form of meditation. And delivered a Satori, or more. Uh, one of the things you talk about as you're walking 
on this journey is the idea of micronations, and you, you named several of them. What, what did you discover, what, what did you think you discovered as you were walking through? You know, I did that a little bit tongue in cheek, but I do think these things exist, and you know, if you go back again to the early travelers, they were very aware of, we're now in a um, German-speaking area of Pennsylvania, we're now in a Quaker settlement area, these, you know, German town and stuff, they were called these things for a reason. And it, it really is the case, and it's one of the mysterious features of American life that the imprint of the people that first settled it, and it, this is very much true in, in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, even in Wisconsin or Wyoming or wherever it is, even as the flux of people coming and going continues because we're a very mobile society, that imprint still stands and, and it's still a thing. And so when you're walking, and this was, you know, I wasn't tarrying for days and days on end, but when you're walking, you get a pretty refined sense of when you're in one of these places and when you're then leaving them. And, you know, when I was in York County, I was in one area that had a very distinctly sort of southern feel. It, it had traded throughout its whole history really largely with Baltimore and related more with that downward into the south um, perspective, while once you cross over into Lancaster, you're dealing now with a heavily Anabaptist, Amish, Mennonite, the way they develop their barns, the way they um, develop their farms, totally different. Um, and that was a very Philadelphia-looking society, and you still feel that, right? The difference between York and, and Lancaster to this day is they're very different places. And, you know, when I went on and then got into, like, Bucks County, and you move into this very English, um, much more Quaker, kind of proper and the, the, you can feel it in the, in the way the houses are constructed, even in the people you meet. And it's real, that's part of the America, three miles an hour, you really get that sense of the differences as you go. Now you also took some time uh, when you were around the Susquehanna River to visit some petroglyphs. So who was your guide and, and how did, why did you decide to explore those? You know, that was a magical day because it was the Easter uh, afternoon and Paul Nevin, who is a person again who, um, is a memory keeper, I kind of call these people. He had devoted a good portion of his life to paying attention to these petroglyphs, which were um, carved into two of these rocks, big and Indian, big and little Indian rock, um, south of the dam there. And they're really quite amazing. I would recommend anybody who lives in Pennsylvania to go there. They're the most extensive rock art that exists basically this side of the Mississippi. And, you know, if you look at the indigenous presence in all over the eastern seaboard, there's very little of any of it left. Um, you know, there are the midden piles of oyster shells in various places on Cape Cod and things like that, but when it comes to enduring um, art, this is one of the very few examples of that. And um, we went out by boat and stood on those rocks and, and saw the various thunderbirds and all these various figures that they had designed for, you know, cosmological and other reasons. And, Paul Nevin was a great guide. He explained the significance. He's been going out there for decades. And, you know, when I went on then into Lancaster and told people and showed them photos, they were like, oh, my God, that's right there, and I haven't been there, you know? And they might have been aware of them, but I didn't encounter anybody who's yet gone, who had gone out. You know, let's get a kayak or a canoe. You can go out, be respectful, see them. And, and you know, it was just these pockets of things that people were aware of there were things of great significance to me and to us collectively that people um, often don't go out of their way to actually go examine. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast. Enjoying this podcast? 
Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Now you write about uh, throughout your journey, some friends would visit you and maybe walk part of the portion with you or have lunch with you. Uh, what was that like? In, this is very much a solitary one-man journey, but at the same time you have your friends and, and others who are kind of joining you. Uh, what did that mean to you as you were on the journey? It was great because they brought a fresh perspective and nobody walked for me with me for more than a morning or an afternoon. Um, in a few cases, I said to really good friends, I said, good, meet me, but I want you to meet me. I want you to be a, a, a solid expert on that subject that we're going to spend the day on. And this great friend of mine, Woody Woodhull, came up, and he had just spent the last weeks and weeks just devouring everything about Henry Chapman Mercer. And we were, I was on my way to Doylestown, Mercer's Museum there, Mercer's Tile Works there. Uh, anyone in that area is going to be well familiar, probably most Pennsylvanians are familiar with Mercer's Museum. And... You know, Woody arrived along the road, and he became my guide to Henry Mercer. And, um, you know, that whole story of what Mercer's about and, and what he's emblematic of is um, a great story, and I devote an entire chapter, really, to his view of who were the real founders. Um, they weren't necessarily the people who wrote the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. He argues they were the people that cut down the forests and built the canals and built the railways. And... And I really liked that, that view that Henry Mercer represented. How did you navigate? Did you, you say you mentioned your cell phone? Did you pick a paper map? What was your method? I had a little of both. Um, you know, I laugh that we call these things phones. I think in five or 10 years, maybe we'll drop that because they're almost never phones. You know, they are everything else and they are great mapping devices. And, you know, in a couple of cases, my batteries wore out. I lost that as a navigational tool. And in one great moment, just on the same day, I'd crossed the Mason-Dixon line. I met this amazing man, Ken Keeney, who's an auctioneer in that part of York County. And we had a great conversation in his barn about a whole bunch of different things that was a, really one of those fantastic moments. It was snowing a little bit outside. And I had met him, as I told him at the end, I said, you know, Ken, why we met? It was my phone battery wore out and I needed to find another human to direct, direct me on to where I was going. And therefore we had this conversation. Um, but yeah, I use that in large part. I did have some paper maps that I would use occasionally. But, um, and I had also done a lot of looking at the colonial maps um, to see kind of how our understanding of the land had evolved over time. And, and I even had some um, of those with me because it's really, there was really an interesting counterpoint to the hyper detail that we now have on our phones. What did you carry with you? And there are certain basic necessities that we all have, clothes and other things. Uh, how big a backpack did you carry? I, I went very light. I was about 17 pounds. The, what, the heaviest thing I had in my backpack was my laptop, which was probably, whatever, three with the charger maybe. Um, I had a, you know, a rain jacket, um, a couple changes of shirts, and one pair of pants and a pair of shorts and only one pair of shoes. And a, I had a very small compact fishing, um, fishing pole because I did some fly fishing in a few places entirely in Pennsylvania. And um, the whole idea, I was, I didn't camp out. I didn't have a tent. I didn't have a sleeping bag. I slept in Airbnb places and people's houses and inns and hotels. I was very much about wanting to go light and not have a burden on my back. So if we were to, if, if we were to join you on your journey, say through Lancaster County, uh, what would you have been seeing and hearing and smelling as you walked through the communities? Well, I mean, Lancaster, I just have to say, was just a godsend and, and miracle upon miracle in many ways. I mean, I left the city of Lancaster, and I, it just 
kind of exploded in terms of the magnificence of, of it. And, you know, anybody who's done the bike trips or walked around Lancaster in that um, Amish Mennonite area knows that, particularly early in the week, is when they do laundry and then they put the laundry out on the lines, which is itself just this beautiful thing to see, you know, just blowing in the wind and the different colors. And, you know, and pe these are people that are out plowing, planting, gardening. They're, they're much more outward, you know, ground-based people. They're not driving around in cars. So you have a lot more interactions with them, as I did. And, you know, I had some truly extraordinary things like the, um, I met a group of Mennonite school kids who were playing an incredible game of softball. I watched them. They then all came up after their lunch and gathered around me. Their teacher, you know, asked me to tell them about what I was doing, which I did. I kind of gave a little talk on their baseball diamond, and then they invited me inside and sang two extraordinary hymns to me that were both hymns of the afterlife written by a local, and as you, I'm sure, know, the, the, they are very good singers. They put a lot of stock in their singing, and it was just an extraordinary moment of, of them giving thanks to me for being there, and I've kept in touch with them. I'm going to do a book event there in Farmersville. I've got, I went up at the end of last year. They invited me to come for a Christmas concert, and, you know, that to me has stood out. If you go out in a, in a welcoming, receptive way and take a walk, you end up making friends, despite the fact that I was only with them for like half an hour. And we created a bond that will endure. I will remain in touch with them probably 10 years from now. Now, the, the teacher or the person there you were connected with, Neil Weaver, uh, you say that uh, out of nowhere, Neil had handed me a new frame through which to see the entire walk. I went on thinking about this concept of nonconformity and renewal. What, what did he say to you? So this is one of those moments, you know, where I really realized that you, you, we all need to learn to listen more. And, you know, I'm in the basement of their school, and I say to him, Neil, explain to me what, how do I understand the Mennonites and what drives them? And he said, well, we're about non-resistance. We don't fight in wars. We don't engage in legal battles. And we're about nonconformity. And then he quoted a line from St. Paul's letter to the Romans that was basically, do not conform to the world, but renew your, transform yourself through a renewal of your mind. And then he, came, he went on, and, I, and then it just, I was like, wait a minute, what, what did you just say? And re just repeat that. And he said it again, and then I, it just was one of these things that kind of clicked in my mind where, you know, the Mennonites, they conform to a lot of their own rules, of course, it's, um, but in their own inner conformity, they're very much of a non-conforming to everything else around them. And they've made certain stands that we're not going to be inundated by this or that commercial interest or this and that, you know, sort of trendy fashion or whatever. And I, I found that a fascinating line just because I felt like I was engaging in and sort of experimenting with my own sort of not only nonconformity, but also this whole concept of how is it that we renew our own minds, whether personally or in our view of the country or its own stories. And I felt that he had kind of given me, as I wrote, a key to understanding one portion, one element of the walk, which was that sort of spiritual side to it. Now, you also took with you a collapsible fishing rod. Did, did you have a chance to fish along the route? I did, yeah. I fished on French Creek, um, and then I fished on the way walking from there down from Coventryville on the way to Yellow Springs. Um, there's a creek there that I stopped, and I, I didn't know. Oh, and I also fished in uh, Valley Forge at um, Valley Creek, which is really quite amazing. That's a great story of, uh, you know, so much of Pennsylvania's rivers and creeks were devastated by all kinds of things in the Industrial Revolution, the or, you know, that whole period in the late 19th century. But there's been a great revival. And 
you know, the fact that Valley Creek, which is 20 miles from the Liberty Bell and right the outskirts of Philadelphia, is a truly great trout stream that the Trout Unlimited people and others have tended to there. And, you know, Pennsylvania has some fantastic fishing the whole length of it, including in the more populated areas. So it was a great interlude. And I, you know, in Valley, and sorry, in French Creek, I caught a few small fish, and there were a few times I caught nothing, but it was the experience of just being in the rivers was worth it. How did your body handle the experience of walking? Were you walking every day? Did you ever have a day where you were like, ah, I don't feel like walking today? I did have, you know, I spent three nights in Philadelphia. I spent two nights in York. I spent um, two nights in Princeton. Um, and in those places, I, it gave me the chance to reconnoiter a little bit. Um, I had to deal with some other stuff in Philadelphia. I got the chance more to look around there. And I also got to rest up. So, I mean, I caught up on my writing, which was also helpful. Um, you know, all in all, Anybody who, for instance, goes out on the Appalachian Trail or does one of those really big things, they'll tell you that no matter how much training you do, you're training in the doing it. And um, so my first few days where I really went, you know, my first day was like 26 miles and the next day was like 20. Those days were hard, but I got better at it as I went and, and it became less of an issue. Um, and the days, the mileage also shortened a bit. I, be, I did about an average of 14 miles a day, something like that all told. Did you have a, a set destination each day? I did, yeah, and that was helpful. I, I, without exception, I knew pretty much without exception where I was going to spend the night that night. And so it was, okay, I've got to go from here to this place. And in terms of what happens in between, we'll see. And I will have ample time to fool around or, or you know, pause at a river or whatever. But that destination... Um, was an important thing in large part because I really did want to sleep in places where I could recharge myself and my phone and my everything else. Now you've talked about some of the people that you met who were clearly meaningful to you along the route that you wrote. Uh, did you find people suspicious of some man walking down the street? You know, not really. There was a whole, speaking of parables, kind of parable moment early on where I, just, I run out of water and I met a guy and I asked if he knew where I could get any water. He was right in front of his house. And he explained to me how I could walk several miles to a, to a general store and I could find water there. That became kind of this like bit of astonishment on my part that he didn't really make the connection that he could just fill my water bottle out of his hose or whatever. But, you know, no, I, I was received, not only was I received well or without suspicion pretty much everywhere, but it made me realize that, you know, we have a millennia long tradition of pilgrimages, particularly in Europe, and a whole history of giving alms to the passing pilgrim and, you know, putting him or her up for the night. And that kind of thing happened a lot, not putting me up for the night, but giving me things or, you know, this coffee's on me or let me give you this sandwich or let me give you these beers or whatever. That kind of gift giving, there must have been 20 times or something that where that sort of thing happened and that became a really interesting feature. You write about how pilgrims... Uh, to Rome or to Jerusalem would often carry objects with them. Did you did you carry anything special with you? You know, I had this uh, coin that a friend had given me years ago that's called a tetradrachm, and it's a um, silver Roman coin from 400 BC, no, sorry, Athenian, from Athens, and it was it's a beautiful thing, and this was sort of the currency of the Mediterranean at that time, and so this was a coin that had traveled all over the Mediterranean, probably it's not, it was rather worn and so I decided to pocket that and bring it with me. So there was several times that we'd be in some place that we would consider to be old, some house built in 1750 or whatever, and I'd say, I have something on me that's 
considerably older. And they would say, what? And I would show it to them, and they'd say, oh my god, you know, 400 BC. It shows how our old things aren't quite that old by comparison to other people's old things. Yeah, we talked earlier about rivers. You walked, you left DC by walking up uh, Rock Creek, but uh, you also have to cross rivers, so you cross the Susquehanna. Did you put in, did, was that a special moment when you were crossing rivers? Did you put thought in, hey, how do I really want to do this? I did, I put a lot of, for one, you know, part of the freedom I granted myself from the outset, if you can call it that, is that I was going to be awed and um, astonished by things that we might blaze across in our car a thousand times and just it's just a given part of the landscape. And, you know, the Susquehanna River is worthy of pausing over. It's something like, I think, the fifth oldest river in the world. Um, it's the, the history of it, the sort of meaning, the significance it's had as a longtime frontier, a time when there weren't bridges, when you had to come and get across by ferry or whatever, is a long storied history. The, and so when I got to these rivers, I, I made a thing of it. I, I, I spent time there. I sometimes, I didn't swim in them per se, but I would put my feet in them. And in that case, I walked across the, the Susquehanna because there's that great bridge from, goes across from Wrightsville to Columbia. And then the Delaware, I had really, of course, no choice but to cross where, where Washington had. So a friend came down from New York and he brought a couple of kayaks and we kayaked across at Washington's Crossing which was a fantastic moment in the, in the walk and uh, a moment I love in the book. And that whole meditation on, you know, what is that crossing? What was, what was it actually like for Washington to have done it versus the kind of mythology of what's in most of our minds from a painting and so on. Um, so I had great fun in, uh, in crossing the rivers. Also, I got a guy to take me across the Hudson by boat into Manhattan. I went exactly where Washington and all the colonials had come across in their you know, going back and forth. There was a very distinct way that they used to do it in those days. So all that stuff was very meaningful. Yeah, at one point in the journey, you reflect on the, the possibility of a feeling of perpetual awe or perpetual, you know, kind of a heightened state of awareness. But you talk about how, you know, we're kind of geared towards bursts of enthusiasm or inspiration. What, what did you, uh, you know, conclude? I love the things you've plucked out. Um, I, that I was fishing on a river on the way to Yellow Springs and you know, I stopped for a while and I was like, okay, I'm this very deliberate human being who's deliberately doing this fly fishing thing. And yet I was just stopped for a while and I was like, wow, this river is just so beautiful. And, you know, you do what we do, which is to pause and feel awe over things. And then I started to think, are we, is that the thing that distinguishes us the most? Or do deer have this feeling? Do squirrels, do other animals have this sense of wow? And, and then I started thinking, going back to this sort of Satori thing that we talked about before, you know, we all seek our moments of exuberance or, or rapture or great heightened um, happiness, but what would it be like if you were constantly like that? Is that even a state that you could achieve? And would you want to be sort of co constantly awestruck or would that just become wearying and tedious and you would need to feel dreary for a while in order to have the contrast? And I don't know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I have a feeling it is the contrast that makes these magical things feel the way they do. Now, you also visited Valley Forge, one of the most famous sites of the American Revolution. What did you see there? You know, I met there very deliberately. It was also somebody I'd reached out to, this great, um, what I might call micro-historian, Lorette Trees, who's done a lot of, she's written books about the history of the railroads in Pennsylvania. And she wrote a book about, not the winter of 77, 78, but about our remembering and deciding to care about Valley Forge as a place. And so I met her there, not to 
recreate, per se, that ghastly winter when they had to reconstitute the Continental Army and when Baron von Steuben came and Lafayette and all the others, it's a great story, but when we gradually, over time, decided to care about it, and it took essentially a century. It's fascinating that we cared about Gettysburg basically instantaneously, right? Gettysburg happened, Gettysburg Address three months later. We didn't, we didn't actually care about Valley Forge until like 13 years after Gettysburg um, in terms of like creating it as a state park and really starting to like take possession of the house that Washington had lived in while he was there. And then it became this kind of um, symbol of Victorian era perseverance and you know, if we have faith as a as people or as a nation, um, if we just stick it out through the hardness of that of a winter like this, when we have no shoes and we have no food, when we're you know, um, we will endure and we will persevere. And that aspect was really interesting to me. Now you also talk about a hermit's cave. Uh, what, what did you seek out there? You know, that, there were these great little things where I just wanted to go out of my way. That was when I was leaving. Um, Pennsylvania, sorry, Philadelphia, and going up the Wissahickon, and um, there was a, a sort of um, spiritualist, mystic, millennial, you know, somebody who thought the world was going to end in a few years, who had come at the very end of the 1600s, and had gone up and stayed at a time in a cave up there, and he had a strange mystic order that soon disbanded, and of course the world didn't end, and he only lived to be 41 or something like that, and, but his... That story was an interesting one because he and his band went on to create like the Mystic Order of the Solitary in Ephrata, which is that incredible cloister that I really recommend people go see because it's such an interesting part of the history of our country and of, and of Pennsylvania. And, you know, there are all these parts of the bloodstream of just curious people that were particularly drawn to the Philadelphia place as like a, a you know, a, a refuge for people that had curious views on religion and, and things. And that story was great. And then from there, I walked on to Benjamin Lay um, and where he had also lived in a cave for a while. And the whole story of the, you know, hunchback Quaker abolitionist who was such a great figure in early America. And I think one of the sort of foundational um, you know, obstreperous loudmouths about we need to end this institution of slavery now. And he really convinced the Quakers to become the force that they did, which was like the first real force within American life to end the thing. And, um, you know, it really points to the centrality of the role of Pennsylvania itself, which is something I hadn't really fully understood until I walked through it. You know, it's called the Keystone State for a reason. And that kind of hinge north-south um, brokering role that Pennsylvania has played, but also I really think this kind of moral cooling off and consideration granting thing that the Mennonites, the Amish, the Quakers, and so many others that really founded early Pennsylvania played that really fundamental role, I think, in the kind of creating of the national identity from north to south that was so important. Now you go into Philadelphia, you're there for a few days. Now, of course, the, we talked about leaving Washington, D.C. and moving into more rural areas. Now you're moving from these rural areas, moving into another major city. Did the, did the speed of life change? Did, did your perception of things change as you go into the city? Yeah, and I always had to wrestle with uh, how am I going to deal with Philadelphia, which is this incredibly deep and rich and really complex history up to this moment right now and is, you know, a sprawling place. And so, you know... I had a, I'm sure a lot of Philadelphians were kind of like, what, this is how you dealt with Philadelphia? But I, you know, I, I had an uh, obsession with the Eastern State Penitentiary 
because the thing, you know, when so many people like de Tocqueville, a lot of people don't know, but when he came to the United States and later wrote Democracy in America, what he actually came for was the study of our prison system. And Eastern State Penitentiary, a Quaker prison, just recently opened, was like a beacon for a lot of travelers that came to the United States. They wanted to see the Americans. They're doing a new forms of imprisonment. Let's see what they're doing. And so I was fascinated by that story, and I really wanted to go and spend some time there for a bunch of reasons. And so that was my kind of entry point into Philadelphia. And then I spent the other half of that chapter going around with this great cartoonist who uh, spent a lot of time as a cartoonist in Philadelphia, Signe Wilkinson. And she took me to this um, Quaker meeting house um, where James Terrell, the light and space artist, had done this great installation there. And, um, and that gave my kind of exit point of sorts, which was also this sort of looking up through a holy place of the sky and kind of thinking about elements of light and freedom. And, and I call that chapter The Eyes of God because in the, going back to Eastern State, these, these solitary confinement cells had these little windows in them. Still, you can go and see them now. That they called the Eye of God that was the only thing that allowed the prisoner in otherwise kept in solitary confinement to look out into the world. And I just found that to be a potent symbol. And I really love the chapter about Philadelphia, but it won't be the Philadelphia that a lot of Philadelphians necessarily recognize. Uh, you cross over the Delaware River. You mentioned that there was a man you met in New Jersey who knew about you through chatter on the internet. So were, were people talking about this? Were you talk, Were you using social media while you were on the on the I was, you know, yeah. I, I started a Twitter chain, which allows you to just string one after the other. And every day I would tweet a couple of photographs with some observation of what I was seeing. And it became a fairly big thing because we have to remember that we thought in the spring of 2021 that COVID was ending and the world was opening up. And I had gone out into the world in a way that was almost premature for a lot of people. Um, and they were like, wow, this guy's taking this walk and he's going out to see all these parts of America that I didn't know exist, the, you know, pictures of the petroglyphs and all these various things. And so people were following a lot and they were, you know, morning edition on NPR did a, a thing about me taking this walk. And so it kind of got out there a bit. And so I had quite a few of these people, I started to call them road fans that would just stop. And for instance, I was going down the canal path on the Delaware walking towards Washington's Crossing. And this young man was walking the other way and he was on his phone, he said, oh, I gotta go. And he put his phone down, he said, are you that guy who's walking to New York? And I said, yeah, and he walked with me and he began to narrate as though sent by some higher force what Washington's Crossing was actually about because he knew the story. He had been to a lot of the reenactments, he had grown up there. And it was so fantastic because it allowed me to be informed and also in terms of writing the book to have him tell readers what that crossing was really like. And he was so good at setting the stage. So those people that popped up out of nowhere were, were really great feature of the walk. And one of the sites you visited in New Jersey was the Edgeboro Landfill. Why landfill? You know, that also was, was one of those great things where I had been driving down a month before from New York back to DC, just along the Jersey Turnpike. And I looked over and I saw, you know, if you keep your eyes open, there are incredible, when I drove down um, today, down from New York, I passed a whole bunch of these landfills and they're everywhere. We have to have a place to put our stuff, right? So we're building these mountains. Um, and the Edgeboro Landfill, which is in, um, in Middlesex County, New Jersey, is a structure that we are actively building right now. And it's one of the highest um, mountains, if you can call it that, along that stretch of I-95. And 
So I, I sent them a note saying, I'm, really, I'm on this walk, I'd love to summit your landfill and see it and understand how you do it. And they said, by all means, yeah, come. And so they took me up. And it was from that promontory that I got my first distant, hazy glimpse of Manhattan about 36 miles away. But you know, going up it, I was being led up by one of the site supervisors and I said, um, I started talking about the mound builders, which you know is a very prominent part of the Ohio River Valley and these mounds going back a thousand years and they're basically like pyramids and some of them are quite advanced structures. And he immediately said, oh yeah, I went to Ohio State, I know the Great Serpent Mound and these other mounds in, in the Ohio River Valley area. And we did a whole kind of compare and contrast of those mounds, they, they are sacred things, they're built for very, and then our mounds, which are strictly built, being built for containing our trash. And again, in the, you know, this being a book a lot about time, you know, this is, this is a measure of time. We are accumulating trash as we go. I, as I say in the book, I started in the past and I walked up to the present, and the present in that case is the trash being dumped at my feet. And um, it was, uh, it was, anyway, I really love that whole section. And I do a little bit with, with, with a sense of humor, but also, look, folks, this is what we're doing right now. This is really, literally, one of our most enduring creations. This will be here thousands of years from now, and if others are digging through the fossil record long after we've gone, some Martians or whatever, they'll say, oh, there's here we're finding some you know, uh, deposits of this long-ago civilization. Look what they left for us. So it's a good thing to keep in mind. You mentioned uh, at the top of the landfill your first glimpse of, uh, of New York City. Uh, and now as you're walking after that, at what point did you see it again? And uh, were, you, were you able to see it as you were walking towards it over a long period of time? Like sometimes you can see that if you're heading towards the Rocky Mountains, you can see them many, many right. miles before. No, I saw it that one glimpse from the landfill and then it kind of receded. And then I'd walked the length of Staten Island and then the, that next morning I was going to walk um, over the Kilvon Coal, which is the body of water that separates Staten Island from Jersey City and Manhattan, for that matter. And um, I was going over the Bayonne Bridge, and I was walking up it, and I just lifted my eyes. I hadn't really thought, like, oh, wait, Manhattan's going to be right there. And all of a sudden, just the island, with all of its brilliance and grandeur and beauty, was just there. And it just kind of overwhelmed me. And I call that chapter Rapture on the Bayonne Bridge, which I think is funny because I'm sure a lot of people who live in Bayonne are going to be like, seriously, you know, you had a religious awakening on the Bayonne Bridge. But it was this just, I think a lot of it was my anticipation. I'd walked for 25 days at that point towards this place. And say what you will about New York, as a structure, as a human thing we have collectively created, it is a gorgeous thing on a morning like that when you see it from a distance. And no matter what travails it had gone through because of COVID and everything else, it was just like a sign of endurance and, and, and all the rest. And it really um, was emotionally moving to me and I try to do it justice in the book. Uh, did you have a specific place in New York City that was your designated endpoint? <laughs> yeah, I, I've always been fascinated by Frederick Law Olmsted and his great masterpiece, which is Central Park, and the fact that it was built throughout the Civil War, and some of its most um, amazing monuments were put there in the middle of the Civil War. Um, and, and one of his great um, tours de force within the park itself is this area called the Ramble, which is this very contorted series of, of he called it like dropping the Adirondacks in the middle of um, Central Park. And, you know, they were building this totally orderly rectilinear city coming north, and, they, and then he 
builds this beautiful park, and he says, you know what, in the middle of this park, I'm going to put this whole system of trails that will discombobulate walkers and, and feel strange and disorderly and confusing. And so my joke was I'm taking this ramble to Olmsted's ramble, this part of Central Park, and that that was really my destination. So what did it feel like once you got there? Uh, it was glorious because it was a beautiful day. It was, uh, you know, the New York was shaking off the COVID thing. Um, it was, Central Park was packed. It was just full-blown spring. Um, my wife had then walked down from somewhere north of there because we have a little apartment because she works at Columbia University. And she came down. I met her after the ramble. And, you know, I had completed this this pilgrimage. I had... I had come to my destination, and I was really on quite a high sort of spiritual plane that really went on for quite a long time after that. It was, I, I would recommend others do something similar, and we can talk about how that might happen, but it's not just this thing I did. It is a thing for anybody to do. Well, we've been talking about the book American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. Neil King, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure, Phil. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.